0: so this is from um the book second samuel chapter 12 it's verse 1 through 6 and uh, this is the conclusion of our sermon series uh difficult conversations how they make us courageous and this is really a courageous conversation that nathan who's a prophet has with king david so says but the thing that david had done displeased the lord and the lord sent nathan to david He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us say thanks be to God. So we're concluding this sermon series on how to have difficult conversations, the difficult conversations that make us courageous. And uh, really, courage is not something we always have in difficult conversations, because um, as you have commented below, there are some topics that just don't seem very polite. Um, to have in public and Christians are supposed to be those people who are polite, right? We're supposed to be polite and genteel and and have those qualities about us. so I, I was just curious about what a what um, were the the five most inappropriate things to talk about in public this week. so I did just a Google search across different things about dating or different networking sites and business and and the top five I found a little bit matched what you, commented on. Now, the Cowboys were not one of those, nor the Rangers losing the World Series twice by one strike. Both times those I know bring up some hurt feelings um, and strong opinions. But uh, in this order, according to these sites, the uh, top five things to not talk about in public or polite conversation. Number one, money. Two, politics. Three, religion. Four, sexuality or relationships. Five, health uh, and health concerns in there. Um, now those sound like things we don't want to talk about in church, right? We could make somebody upset. We could make them uh, mad. Um, we don't usually bring those up. Maybe we think we're going to hurt Jesus's feelings, or or possibly it's because some of those conversations have hijacked uh, church in in other ways, and we start to lean out of our church selves and get into this other mode and leave Jesus behind. I'm not sure exactly the right answer, but I do find it a little ironic that those are the top five things not considered polite in public conversation. But do you know what the top five conversation topics in the Bible are? They're not in the same order. But number one, religion, kingdom of God. Number two, politics. Number three, money. Number four, sexuality and relationships. Number five, your health. So we've pretty much left out most of the Bible by leaving out these five conversation topics, Um, and we've actually hit all five of them just in this story of Nathan and David uh, alone. And the Bible tends to be a little more courageous than we are. Um, the Bible doesn't pretend that we're all in a beer commercial, just sitting around chatting about sports or the latest gossip in our school district all the time. The, The Bible doesn't pretend that we're just supposed to talk about Netflix shows that we binge watch all the time as this fluffy conversation. The Bible deals with real life, how we relate to each other conversation and gives us great guides on how to do that in a way that isn't geared toward conflict or anger or hatred. It gives us templates, it gives us lots of great stories and advice on how to have these courageous, difficult conversations to grow closer with one another. And in fact, show love and grace through the difficult, courageous conversations. And remember, there's always the goal of unity, whether it's the letters of Paul, whether it's the teachings of Jesus, whether it is the Old Testament and the prophets, the goal for every difficult conversation between two people or a prophet in israel or jesus and the pharisees is always reconciliation and forgiveness and unity it's jesus's prayer over jerusalem that these difficult conversations that sometimes accountability would show ultimate love that would bring people and communities together so i know there's a lot going on in the world and know that we came up with this Sermon series a long time ago. So whatever um, that whatever your, is on your mind today, um, you can bring that into the sermon. You can you can listen to that, but but know that it's not specifically about your relationship or any politics going on or any health crisis or anything. This is just how the Bible shows us to engage in those courageous conversations so that we can grow closer to one another in the best way, biblically speaking. So. If you've forgotten the story of Nathan and David, it starts before Nathan confronts David because David is on a king uh, and a palace high up on a hill where he can see down to everybody else's rooftop. And on another rooftop is a beautiful young woman named Bathsheba who happens to be married to one of David's soldiers named Uriah. And David is not in his great kingly state in this point and, um, and basically summons Bathsheba to his quarters, sleeps with her. Um, gets her pregnant, tries to uh, cover it up by getting Uriah to come home. But Uriah is faithful to his oath as a soldier and won't won't sleep with his wife. And so uh, David sends Uriah back to the front lines and then has Joab as general pull everyone except for Uriah back. And Uriah is basically fighting an army all by himself and, and dies because of this. So we've got adultery and we've got murder right there on David's conscience. But it actually starts before David and Bathsheba and this story goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, when Moses is standing on the other side of the Jordan River, looking across the Jordan at the Promised Land, and is giving the law. So Leviticus is the law for while they're in the wilderness, and Deuteronomy is the law for them as they uh, go into the Promised Land. And in Deuteronomy 17, chapter uh, chapter 14, we've got this scripture verse about what it means to have a king, what it means to be a righteous king, and, and Moses says to them, "When you have come into the land." That the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it, and settled in it, and you say, "I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me." So this is like the inevitable, right? We always are looking for leadership, and we want to be like every other powerful nation. But here are the things that the Bible, that that God tells Moses, that Moses tells the people of what the king is supposed to be like. Verse sixteen. He must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses, which essentially is is not supposed to have a strength in military might. He's supposed to be a humble king. Verse 17. He must not acquire many wives for himself or his heart will turn away, which is they would marry uh, daughters and princesses of other um, of other countries to make political alliances, which often meant you had to accept the other gods as well. So there's lots of infidelity going on in that practice that God wants the king to stay away from and then we've got verse 17 again also silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantity for himself so the biblical example of what a king is supposed to be is very counterintuitive to what we see from all of history from the pharaohs and the caesars and the kings of of all the great empires that we study uh, around the world even the the dynasties over in in asia Um, those were Kings that we followed because they were wealthy and powerful, but the Bible is describing a King who is supposed to simply be equal with the people set apart for leadership, but not set above to have any kind of special prejudice or over anybody else. Um, and and David's not living into this. David is not able to meet the counterintuitive nature of leadership. Um, the counterintuitive nature that he is supposed to simply be a mediator of God's justice and mercy to make sure that everyone has a fair leg to stand on in the kingdom of Israel so that they can make it and they can be strong together as a body. There's even a prayer about this that uh, in Psalm 72, it says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy, and crush The oppressor. And this is written by uh, David's son Solomon. So hereditarily, no one can live up to those standards, right? We, We tend to strive for power and we tend to seek power, but power also creates the difficult conversations. And it's not just with kings. Power creates difficult conversations with people we care about as well. And I think it's very easy for us to throw darts at people in power, very easy for us to throw darts at world leaders who are far away, assuming making selfish decisions. It's very easy for us to throw darts at uh, Hollywood celebrities who are activists or whatever, who are out uh, campaigning for things that seem so far away from us. I think it's very hard when to throw darts and to attack people who are more intimately close and connected. With us. It's very hard to confront your parent and your sibling. And so that's why we see such vitriol towards kings and people who are out there. But Nathan is confronted with that person who is right next to him. And we're often more confronted with people that we know, people in our church, people in our family, people who are friends of ours. This is where difficult conversations truly become difficult and become courageous because when we are invested in people, we give them our power. When we are in love with somebody, when we are in friendship with somebody, we are vulnerable with them enough to share our power with them because if we lose them, it will break our heart. And we can break their heart if we leave as well. It could be a marriage, it could be a friendship, it could be a church relationship, it could be a political party, it could be a sports team, whatever your allegiances and affiliations might be, when you care about somebody, conversations become that much more difficult because you have that much more to lose. See, social media is the exact opposite of that. And that seems to be where our difficult conversations have leapt to in this day and age. We think we can just put it out there. We can have these civilized conversations. But when you're staring at a profile picture or a screen or you're chatting with somebody who is three times removed from the friend that you saw comment uh, who initially posted something, you're not looking at a human being. You're looking at a screen and you're a lot braver when there's nobody who just will walk away in that moment. You're a lot more courageous to talk to a screen and you're a lot also more hateful, right? That's why social media is a trash bin of vitriol. It's why if you can't stop yourself from doing those things, then you're allowed to delete your social media accounts and just tune back in on Sunday for for worship uh, if you're streaming this way, right? On social media, there's nothing to lose. So we're vicious. In the real world, when we have to look at people face to face, we're polite and we don't go far enough. And so this is why Nathan does such a great job in 2 Samuel chapter 12, is that he's able to split the difference between vicious and polite, just in the right way. And he does three things that we can learn from, that the Bible speaks of in other places as well. The first thing that Nathan does with King David is Nathan makes it impersonal. And and that's an interesting thing to say, because every sin is personal, right? But he doesn't make it a personal attack. Like everything David does, from the adultery to the murder, those are personal, and, and the other sins of our world, whether it be cheating or lying or poverty or neglect or oppression or racism or sexism, those things are, are personal. Um, but I've yet to see any good come out of a conflict where somebody feels like dirt because the human brain is wired that when we get attacked, when, we, when our existence is threatened, we will uh, fight or flee. Our amygdala is that reptilian part of our brain that we will, we will immediately defend ourselves by running away or by fighting. But what Nathan does is he makes it a, a larger concept. So that when it's a larger concept and it's a hypothetical, we can allow that thought to go into our cerebral cortex and process a little bit more than what our reptilian brain allows us to comprehend. And so um, let me just put it this way. If I looked across the screen at you and I said, you are a racist or you are a sexist, right? You are immediately forming your defense in your head for why you're not a racist or a sexist. But here's the thing in that defense that I notice is that if you're forming a defense, it means you also think that's bad. So right there, we have already agreed in this hypothetical, larger scheme of racism and sexism that you think those are bad, too, that we both think those are bad. So we found higher ground. We found common ground in the, the higher level of the hypothetical situation. And Nathan does this to King David. He comes in there. He doesn't go to King David and said, you were an adulterous, cheating murderer. He goes to King David and said, here, I have this situation for you. I want you to make a ruling on it. And he tells a story of a poor shepherd and a rich landowner, which great master struck by Nathan because David used to be a poor shepherd and now he's a rich landowner. So he kind of brings that personalization in there, but he presents the hypothetical so that him and David can find common ground for which they agree. David also doesn't think that the poor should be cheated by the rich, whether that is predatory lending or tax code or simply just stealing somebody else's wife out from under him. David also agrees that that is part of a king's duty he just doesn't see that he's doing it yet. So, so Nathan starts the conversation by making it impersonal, right? Making sure that we can all agree that, um, of the, of the sins of the world, that, um, those bigger picture things are are wrong. Um, but the thing that Nathan also does in this is he makes it personal. And I know I just counter, counteracted the first point there a little bit, but so Nathan makes it impersonal by bringing in the hypothetical building consensus and common ground from a higher level. And Nathan does call David directly out in his sin, but what he does by making it personal is not the calling out. What he does is he follows what Matthew 18 15 says, and this is Matthew 18 has this whole prescription for what you should do when you're confronting somebody in the church um, or in a community uh, in sin. it says go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone and and i want you to go read matthew 18 at some point because this is about five steps before gossip about it on social media Um, this is seeing people face to face for who they are and there's something about going one-on-one with somebody right so social media i've I've talked about it earlier and it's a big deal in our world now with difficult conversations because this is our go-to is we vent for a whole world to see assuming we're gonna get likes and comments and and make ourselves uplifted in our opinions. But what's gonna happen is you're gonna put something out there and somebody is going to disagree with you on there. Now, if you're the person who disagrees, what do you think is gonna happen? Because that person has all these friends that they have chosen who probably already agree with them. So it's going to just gang up on you. And, and, or if you comment on somebody else's feed, their friends are all gonna gang up on you. And what you have is like this squad of this posse that just attacks viciously because we're not looking at human eyes. And, and what Nathan does so well is Nathan goes one-on-one to King David so they can look at each other's humanity. But also when you go one-on-one, it means you're vulnerable. You're not bringing in a squad to back you up. You don't have a Jets versus Sharks thing going on where you're going to do a snap battle you know, to, to gain supremacy. You're going one-on-one because you care and respect that person enough. To humble yourself, you're not going in to win. You're going in to reconcile. You're going in to love the other person because they need to be corrected or they need to be held accountable for something that they've done. And when you go in one on one, you're making yourself vulnerable just in that action alone, to where the other person can maybe receive that a little bit better instead of being ganged up on on social media or being ganged up on by. Um, multiple voices all in that room. So Nathan makes it impersonal by using larger examples, right? He he goes to Galatians 3.28 and says, there's no longer Jew or Greek or male nor female, right? He makes it a big picture argument, but then he goes one-on-one to address it personally because going to someone personally means it matters that much more. And the third thing that Nathan does is Nathan is invested. And this is a really important point. Um, there's a little bit of history I haven't told you yet in this sermon that Nathan and Obadiah in the old Testament are the only two prophets who are known as court prophets and court prophets, uh, unlike Ezekiel or Amos or Hosea or Micah, those are like the voices like John the Baptist, the like people whose voices are coming uh, out of the one whose voice calls out of the wilderness. Um, they are called by God out from the margins of society to speak truth to power, Um, For those who are oppressing the poor and not living according to the way that Deuteronomy wants the Israel to go. Um, But Nathan has a little bit more courage, I actually think, because a court prophet is an appointed position like in a president's cabinet uh, as an advisor. So you see like the movie Troy has court prophets where King Priam is trying to decide whether the Trojans should go out and fight the Greeks who are um, on the beach. And Hector, his son, who's super practical, is arguing that, no, that's not a great idea and to take this seriously. But the court prophets are, they all turn into kind of yes men throughout history. They're like people who are supposed to have God's divine vision for what's happening in this world. And yet they just always seem to agree with the king. And Nathan here is courageous in that he cares enough about King David to tell him the truth. And that's not something court prophets always did and it means he's a good friend it means he's that investment in king david and and his career is probably tied up in king david's career anyway so nathan is invested with david before the difficult conversation happens and this is where our relationships matter beforehand is that if the the more we can treat each other with love and grace and kindness leading up to a difficult conversation the easier it is to have that difficult conversation or the easier it should be to have that difficult conversation because we can trust that that person truly wants what's best for us i think that's been the most frustrating thing in all those five categories when we have um, talked about politics or religion or sexuality or health or even calling somebody out in sin what's been most frustrating to see is that years of investment can snap like that it seems that years of investment can turn on a dime when we don't handle it well when we don't go one-on-one with love and grace, when we don't um, draw somebody into a bigger picture of the story and, and instead we just make it about that attack. Um, and I really hope that we can see the investment that people have been making in us, that when people come to us with difficult conversations that courageously come with us to us with difficult conversations, then we can be open to knowing that those people want what's best for us. That Matthew 18 passage, it starts off with a one-on-one and it says, you know, bring maybe two or three just to be witnesses um, to that person. And then, you know, step number three is actually get the church involved. And um, I don't know about you, but I have never found uh, myself confronting anybody with politics or anything to be well-received within the church. And I wish that would change. Because I have experienced from all of us this love that is communal, these love shared in our baptismal vows to care for each other and love each other and push each other and hold each other accountable. This is what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be the place where we do have those five conversations. The church is supposed to be the place where we act like Jesus who talked about all of these things all the time, courageously with Paul and Peter and, and uh, all the apostles who, who were trying to lead people into a life of holiness and righteousness and Paul who held Peter accountable to his hypocrisy with the Gentiles, right? Church is supposed to be the place where we refine each other in love and grace. We're not supposed to attack, and we're not supposed to assume we're being attacked. We're supposed to assume and start from the place of grace and love. We're supposed to assume that those who are confronting us with difficult, courageous conversations do love us, and they might have something to offer us. And so That's part of the reason why we posture ourselves like Nathan is so we don't take advantage of human nature and scare somebody off. And so we go one on one, we make it big picture and invite them into a whole story. But more importantly, right now is the time to invest in each other's lives. Right now is the time to show that we care come, come hell or high water so that when we need to confront each other, we can do it knowing that grace abounds. Knowing that we will work in that situation for reconciliation and forgiveness, never for attack, and never for uh, disunion. And so, those are the two things I think I would love for us to be: is to know that as the church, we aren't meant to just be polite. And Jesus wasn't just polite. We're not meant to avoid these difficult conversations that uh, lead us into a deeper place of holiness. Lead us into a deeper place. I mean, what better place should there be to? talk about relationship problems or sexuality. What better place should there be to talk about politics when we have the guidebook of Jesus to show what we're, how we're supposed to treat each other? What better place should there be to talk about money when Jesus talks about money all the time? We should be able to have these safe conversations amongst ourselves so that we can help make the world a better place in these five realms of, that seem to be so difficult to chat about. So we're not called to just be polite. We're not called to be in a beer commercial. We're just talking about sports all the time. We are called to engage the world because God so loved the world that he engaged the world and Christ took on human form to be incarnational and engage the world. We are called to be the body of Christ through the spirit to engage the world. So we're not meant to be just polite, but we're not meant to be vicious either. We're not meant to attack. We're not meant to kick anybody out. That is the last thing that Jesus wants is what Nathan does so well is we are not meant to attack. And we're meant to hold a countenance and an aura about ourselves to where we are able to receive critique and receive uh, accountability because we trust each other and we love each other. And that doesn't happen until we love each other before the difficult conversation. And so my hope for us is that we can be a church that models this to the community about how to have these difficult conversations where sometimes we need to go against the grain and sometimes we need to learn from each other. And sometimes we need to tell the truth to each other or to our community uh, or to the world around us, because we are the body of Christ. We're not just some an organization where we come and, and talk sports all the time or Netflix all the time. We are courageous people. We ought to be courageous people, but we have to do it in grace and we have to do it in love. And we have to remind the world that our goal is to come together in the truth and peace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you to pray with me as we uh, lead into that. Let's pray. Gracious God, give us the courage, the courage and humility to split the difference between vicious and polite. And we'll call that grace. We'll call that love. Love that uplifts and empowers the other person that we're talking to, the other person that we need to come into forgiveness with. And Lord, help us to recognize that every difficult conversation has two sides. Every difficult conversation has two experiences entering into that. Help us to be courageous, to be humble, to be receiving, and to be courageous as we hold each other to the standards of holiness, the holiness that Jesus showed when he forgives, and when he loves, and when he seeks to bring the kingdom of God more closely to this earth than it is right now. Lord, with all this we ask in the courage and grace of your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.